every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Brian Carden, CMO of InVision. InVision is the leading digital product design platform powering the world's best user experiences, whose customers include 100% of the Fortune 100. Brian is a multi-time CMO and experienced marketing executive at companies like Fuse, Eloqua, Forrester Research, and Read Business Information, the largest B2B publisher in the world. On this episode, Brian unleashes his lessons on why website chatbots are more effective at generating leads than humans, why marketers should study SDRs and direct mail like anthropologists, and much more. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Brian Carden and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of Demand Gen Visionaries and CEO of Caspian Studios. I am joined by special guest, Brian, how are you? Hey, how are you? Good to be here, Ian. Great to have you on the show. Uh, somebody who is an award-winning marketer, uh, somebody who has been one to watch from, uh, from many publications, and someone who is sitting at a really cool company here. So let's get into it. Brian, how'd you get into marketing and demand gen in the first place? Well, it's funny about award-winning marketing. You know, I think there are more awards given for marketing than anything else. And we're a virtual company. We never had offices, so we're fully distributed. So whenever we win an award, they always show up at my house. <laughs> and I have just acres and acres of lucite. <laughs> and I can see how unoriginal all these awards companies are because they look almost identical. Um, so we've got a lot of awards here. But I do find that uh, it's very motivating for the marketing team to have goals and to win awards about their creativity or demand gen. So I got into marketing after graduate school. My mother was very creative. She was an opera singer and my father was a scientist. And so it seemed like a perfect combination of right brain and left brain. And I love what I do. I love the science of it. I remember when the first words, the phrase marketing science first appeared. And, uh, you know, I was, I'm early enough into marketing to remember it was just the arts and crafts department. But I love the, the art and science of marketing and uh, just been doing it for a long time. I started out after graduate school as a consultant, as a consulting firm, working on mostly consumer brands. So it was Heinz and Coca-Cola and Ralph Lauren. And uh, I was a partner at the firm eventually. And then um, we had twin boys and I didn't want to travel all the time. I wanted to see them and help raise them. So I got an offer for a CMO job at a very big company called Reed Elsevier, about a $5 billion a year British Dutch company. They own things like LexisNexis, which is the online database and other things. And so that's where I really started my marketing career. I never sort of grew up in sort of in a marketing organization, like starting out as like an assistant or associate manager and rising. I sort of went from consultant, like I carried the slides and presented a lot to being CMO of a very large organization. And uh, I love marketing. 
Well, and you know, you have such a, a rich background with stops at a bunch of places like Eloqua and Forrester and and places that every single uh, lattice, uh, every single person who listens to this show knows about. And today I'm super excited to, to chat about how you think about marketing at Envision. For our listeners who don't know, can you share a little bit more about the company? Yeah, Envision, I've been there about two years and we're a platform for product design. We believe that every company is a digital product design. You know, banks aren't about walking in the door, but it's about the apps we have on our phone. Uh, Disney is about the apps, um, whether it's to get in line faster at uh, Disney or to watch uh, some sort of animation. So we help with digital product design. So we're a platform for doing that. So teams can come together and build amazing digital experiences. And we're very fortunate to have 100% of the Fortune 100 as our customers which I've never heard of almost any company talk about. Wow. And uh, it's really unbelievable. And so we feel so blessed. And so a big part of our selling motion is we've landed these amazing companies and we want to expand within them. So that's what Envision does. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where we go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest, demand-gen secrets. First off, who are your customers? You mentioned 100% of those Fortune companies, which is pretty amazing. Uh, So clearly every type of industry and vertical you could imagine. But who buys your product? Who's Who's the buying committee? Yeah, so at the enterprise level, it's the head of product design. So it's usually a director or a vice president of product design to people designing the digital products. So at Bank of America, it's a vice president of digital product design. But we also have a PLG, a product-led growth motion, and that's individuals who want to build prototypes and build out products and share and use our digital whiteboard product called Freehand. So it's both top-down, which is very exciting. That's what I know mostly about enterprise selling. But also, it sort of used new muscles for me, having a freemium product and having, we have 7 million people now have downloaded our software to use it. And many of those, you know, there's a a paywall that comes up at some point and we charge them for it. And at other points, we'll see 10 or 20 or 50 people in the same organization using our product. And that's a great opportunity. We call that a product qualified lead, a PQL. And that goes over to our sales team to try to turn that into an enterprise deal. So I love having the top down enterprise motion, but also the bottoms up. So it feels like a consumer business in some ways, because we do have 7 million people using our product. But also, it's a it's a core enterprise sell as well with a direct sales team. And so, what is your marketing strategy? What's your demand gen strategy? We want to um, make sure people have an amazing experience in the product. And you can do a lot of marketing and put a bow around the box, but once they open the box, it's got to be a beautiful experience. And so, I spent a lot of time working with our product team to make sure that the uh, the product experience is wonderful. How they get onboarded, how they find us, how they download the product. Uh, how do we encourage greater usage of the product? So we believe that the best customers are people who are not sold and marketed to, but are actually using the product. So that's why we have these 7 million people using a product. We want to make sure they're super happy, and then we can turn them into paying happy customers later on. The other big core part of my strategy is to meet customers where they are, not where we are. And I think a lot of marketers are trying to build all these assets and these properties to get people to come to them but I'd rather go where other people are. You know, when they come to your properties, their antenna are up. Like you're trying to sell them something, you're trying to market them something. But contextually, if you're somewhere where they go naturally, they're searching for products, let's say some of the 
uh, crowdsource product review sites like G2 or TrustRadius or TrustPilot or Captera or CIO Magazine, if you're selling to CIOs, like I want to be where they are, where they're searching. First of all, to get them early, I think by the time they come to your website, they've already been you know, brainwashed and they have certain beliefs and it's hard to dissuade them. So I want to get people as early as possible in the process to influence uh, their own criteria and how they think about the category. Yeah, and you, you, know, you mentioned that there's a big difference between kind of your enterprise buyer and, you know, the folks that are, that are already using the app, um, you know, the person who's going to use the app and, and love it versus the person who's going to, you know, swipe the credit card, um, or, or sign the invoice there. Um, how do you think about, you know, your website as it relates to, you know, driving people to those different kind of, uh, personas? It's really a good question. Uh, I'd say the key thing we do is we test everything, so we used to, for a while, have a single call to action. That is, we want everybody, whether you're enterprise or you have your own little business, to download the app. But now we have additional calls to action where you can contact a rep or speak to a rep or I'm interested in an enterprise conversation versus downloading it. So we're doing A-B testing all the time with different messages and different calls to action. So basically, on our website and other places, we have multiple calls to action. So if you just want to experience the product, it's sort of seamless, no friction. You go right in there and you use our product for free. And if during that process you want to speak to a human being, that's fine too. Uh, of course, we have uh, AI bots on our website as well, so you can speak to a digital bot. You know, I'd say the other motion I try to do is I talk to my team about putting more Q in the MQL. And so often we pass so many leads to human beings, and I'm a big fan of passing them to bots who can qualify them. All the data on lead response time you know, I'm sure you've been involved with organizations where people are very proud to respond to a lead in two hours and three hours. And uh, and we're seeing that the decay rate on conversions is like 15 minutes or five minutes or four minutes. Yep. And so rather than have it go to a human being that may not get to it right away, we prefer to have a bot respond. So we'd rather have fast response time rather than have a human being on the other end. The other thing is what we found, which surprised me, is that a lot of people don't want to speak to a human. They're much more comfortable speaking to a bot. I don't know about you, but I don't have a travel agent. Like this is my travel agent, my phone. I don't you know, go into a bank and talk to a teller. I use my apps. Uh, customer service, like I don't expect someone at Amazon or Uber to pick up the phone, but I do expect to have really good bot responses. And our bots, of course, never take vacation. They can respond in seconds. Even if they get an inbound at three in the morning, they can respond within seconds. And so uh, I'm a big believer in using MarTech and AI wherever possible to really deliver super high quality leads when it goes to a salesperson. I think we're too many marketers are enamored with the quantity of the leads going to the sales team versus the quality and the conversion rate. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I think I'm kind of you know obsessed with this idea of like the parallel tracks that figuring out how your customers buy and how they want to buy is going to be so different depending on the person and, and what they want to do. There's so many people that, that don't ever want to talk to a salesperson or who want to only talk to the salesperson once they figured out the exact solution that they want. And then they're like, okay, I, you know, I need to figure out some implementation things with this or talk to a sales engineer or whatever it is. And there's other people who are in that phase where they're like, 100% info gathering. I did some of my homework. I know that these three vendors are the three that I need to be talking to. 
and I just need to sit on a, a Zoom call or whatever and and let them kind of spit some information at me and and answer questions. You're spot on. You know, you see that in consumer categories like cars. Yeah. Some people do all the research and they got it down to one car. They walk into the dealership and just want to do a transaction. Other people want to test drive every car in the world, you know. Uh, same thing with house buying. Uh, you know, Zillow now is buying houses. Um, so that was a category nobody thought would ever happen. A friend of mine from Zillow started a business, just got funded the other day about mortgages, like one-click mortgage. Yep. And so I think there are a lot of categories that used to have a lot of humans involved and lawyers and process and salespeople. And now not only is it faster and easier, but it's what a lot of consumers prefer. We've got one client, um, it's a bank in uh, Scotland, and they talk about what their goal is. They want to have the fastest mortgage in the world, the fastest mortgage. So, And they do it all with an app, with a digital product experience. You never talk to a human being and you get approved from start to finish. They can do it right now in about 18 minutes. Wow. You're approved for mortgage in 18 minutes. And you know it goes out to your credit rating. It goes out here, just everything. And then you're approved for a mortgage based on all the data that they have. It's just extraordinary. I remember applying for a mortgage years ago and it just took forever, literally weeks and weeks and weeks. It was just insane. And all the paperwork was nuts. Oh, I mean, I... <laughs> I did it a handful of months ago and it took forever. So yeah. <laughs> even even still, it hasn't changed that much. Yeah, it's right for disintermediation. I think there's a better way to do mortgages and that's going to be disintermediated just like banks and travel agents and so many other categories. Well, and it speaks to, to what we're talking about here with demand gen. I mean, this is something where, you know, we're trying to figure out a way to get people to take that next step, right? And if the next step seems ponderous or or laborious, they're just like not going to do it, right? Like, why would I, it's like, you know, this is the classic SDR dilemma, right? It's like, I don't ever want to talk to an SDR for the rest of my life. Like, I don't want to spend 15 minutes on their calendar. And it's nothing against SDRs, you know, it's just about the fact that like, why would I want to talk to someone who's a brand new college grad who just doesn't have a fundamental understanding of my business for 15 minutes of my life. It makes no sense. Can I give you a different point of view on that, Ian? Yeah. Because as a marketer, not as a consumer, as a marketer, I love to talk to SDRs. And so like you, I get cold called all the time by SDRs. And even so it says junk call or telemarketer, whatever, I pick it up and I want to see what they do. And in my career, I've actually hired two SDRs. <laughs> People who called me and they were so good I said, they said, you know, want to have another meeting? And I always say, this is the meeting. Like, I'm the buyer. You've got the meeting. You've got one minute. You know, they're all anxious to set up a meeting. Like, like take advantage. And a couple of these SDRs were amazing, and I've hired a couple of them. But it's like an anthropologist. Like, I want to see animals in nature. You know, I want to see the history of how it all works. So I love observing how SDRs operate. Are they prepared for the call? Do they know what they're doing? Are they comfortable? Can they show value? It's really fascinating to me as a marketer. I remember when I started my marketing career, I would always collect direct mail, like great envelopes that had a great call to action, the window, they had like a little nickel you could see, oh, I'll open it up for five cents. And like, I just love exploring marketing. I'm probably like you when I get my iPhone, like how much fun is it to open that package and feel the curves and feel the, the box and, and feel how beautifully it opens? Like, I want to get into marketing and enjoy it. And so I do like hearing SDR calls, but not as someone being sold to, but just understanding the process. 
Well, yeah. So it's funny you say that. I do the same thing. That's why I don't turn off. Like I have no ad free uh, on any. Like I don't have ad free Hulu. I don't have ad free anything because I want to hear what ads people are are doing everywhere. Yes. Um, I yeah. can't believe you take all the calls with SDRs. That's definitely not me. Not all of them. I'll be honest. You're right. Yeah, you, you got me. I don't take all of them, but some I do when I can. I sort of enjoy the process. I do. I do know what you mean. What my favorite thing to do is. Uh, this is like the ultimate, um, but this is important. This is important stuff. I think it's a, it's a, it's an important segue for for marketers because a bunch of marketers own SDR teams and trying to figure this stuff out. Selling to senior leaders is is the name of the game here. So I like to just like interrupt them and say like, listen, I have absolutely no time right now, but if you can send me an email that you know that figures this out, then great. And it's like even if they don't have them, my email, I'm like, well, sorry, tough tough life. Figure out a way to get in, figure out a way to get it because it's definitely on the internet. But I think that this speaks to the fact that you're saying, which is everybody wants to buy differently now and figuring out and marketers need to figure out how people buy more so than necessarily why people buy now. Because a lot of times as a marketer, we already know why they buy, or we at least have a, we've been talking to them. We have a hypothesis of these are the five reasons why people buy because we're, we're talking to customers, but we rarely ask the question of how do you buy uh, as, as a marketer talking to customers? Absolutely. You know, we do a few things that, uh, it's a little bit like a recommendation engine. Like if a person's coming to our site and they're always watching videos, that's how they prefer to consume content. And so we'll then send them more videos. We won't send them a long form piece of content. We won't send them a blog post. If someone's never downloaded our videos and prefers to read or prefers to join a webinar, we invite them to more webinars. So we have a little bit of um, how they prefer to consume information you know, I'm sure you have preferred ways, you know, people like to watch things or participate in things or read things. And so we have a little bit of that algorithm going on. And the more times you come to our website, the smarter we get about what you like to do. And so we can get a little bit better on the content side. We still don't know how you buy, but at least we can try to have higher conversion rates based on how you enjoy consuming content, at least. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three uncuttable budget items? So it's so interesting about playbooks. You know, all of us have a playbook that we use. We show up in a new job. We got our playbook. What I found is that very often you have a playbook and the team you're fighting against the playbook doesn't work anymore. I've seen sales leaders do this all the time. They have emotion. They go in and they don't even look and see what the environment is. They just bring out the play that has been tried and true. And so I think the biggest mistake from the playbook is assuming the playbook you used in your last two jobs is going to work in this one. So you have to take a little time to understand what's going to work, what isn't. I'll give you a few tips in my playbook about what is uncuttable, but I'll give you a sort of a higher level conversation. One is I have a group of CMOs that I talk to fairly frequently about what's working, what isn't. And so I talk to vendors, but I love to talk to some great CMOs who are really friends of mine for a long time. So I would encourage a lot of your audience to find peers, people that don't compete directly with you, but you can share a lot of things. And a few of my friends who are CMOs, they're early adopters of technology. And I always say, how's it going with that new thing? And they say, oh, terribly or great, or you got to try this. And so you could really move very quickly if you get some vetting from some people you really trust. And so that's one of the things I, I like to do in my playbook. Um, the other one in my playbook that I think is really important, and everybody talks about testing, 
but we bake in testing to everything we do because I can't assume that I know what's going to work. I've got a CEO who tells me, Brian, I'm telling you, these words will work. And I say, Clark, we will try that, but we're going to try three other things as well. And I'd love to come back to him and say, this is how it performed and how it didn't perform. Everyone's got ideas, um, but I want to be the place where we can test the ideas. The other uh, part of the playbook is to go slow, to go fast. So I see a lot of people going really fast, but if you don't have the foundation of analytics, you're really flying blind. And so marketers jump into a new job and they want to really show value right away. But if you don't have a good foundation of understanding what's working and what isn't, you don't have a really good marketing automation platform that's configured the right way and the right MarTech stack and the right data stack, you're really, it's going to slow you down later. It's like engineers who have technical debt. Like you can never develop a new product if the foundation is cracked. You just can't build up. And so for a marketing organization, you got to go slow to go fast. I inherited my company, HubSpot, which is really good uh, for a delicatessen or a barbershop. You know? And I remember you know, we have a 10 million database. And I remember calling HubSpot and saying, uh, hey, guys, you know, we may not be renewing. And they said, you know, Brian, we were waiting for the call. I said, why? He says, well, you're our second biggest customer. Says you have 10 million in your database. I said, who's your biggest customer? And they said, we are, because we can't use anything else. We have to use HubSpot. So, and then I said, who's your third biggest customer? And they said, it falls way off. <laughs> like no one's even close. And so it was just legacy. So I love HubSpot and the team over there, but it just doesn't scale, doesn't have the granularity, the things you need, like a Marketo, Eloqua, Pardot, that sort of generation of, of tools. So just a few thoughts about sort of plays that matter to me. I think also building the team really matters. It's got to be a team that um, is very curious and is always trying new things. And I want to make sure that there's no finger pointing. I love it, you know, each month and each quarter when we look at the campaigns, which ones perform well and which ones don't. And I want to make sure the team is honest. Like, let's talk about the ones that really stunk. You know, half are going to be below average. You know, everyone's not above average. So let's figure out what happened, what we believed. And so this idea of failing fast and moving very quickly. So I'd love to hire people like that. I always ask about where did you fail? What did you learn? What was your next step? How did you use that information? So teams and people who are really good about um, learning from their mistakes and things didn't work well. And then a mistake I've made in my career is sometimes I've hired superstars, real rock stars, but they don't get along with everybody. It's all about them. And uh, I won't make that mistake again, but I have made it several times because I'm very enamored with rock stars, but I'd much rather focus in on team and working well as a team rather than having a few people that there's a lot of management issues involved with people who are very much about themselves and uh, they're always... Um, promoting themselves and want all the credit. really don't like that. Yeah, it's a fine line, right? Uh, you know, especially in marketing teams where you are, you know, depending on the team, you're either, you know, supporting sales 100% or you're, you have your own, you know, revenue generating motion and you support sales. Like if you have a self-serve motion or something like that. So you want people to take ownership. You want people to take credit for things that they do, but you also, and you want to be able to track you know, who is coming up with these sort of things, because it does matter. Like the person who comes up with, you know, the certain tweak or this or that, like those things add up and they should be promoted and they should get recognition for those things. But at the same time, uh, it's a team game and you win or lose as a team, no matter what. I find that most ideas need filtering through the team to make them work. So sometimes someone does come up with a lot of great ideas, but 
uh, the raw idea really doesn't cut it. You've got to do something with it. So I'm almost never finding out. I never ask the question like, who came up with that? I think that's the wrong question, at least for me. It's always about team and how do we do it together and uh, good ideas and cultivating them. But uh, yeah, I almost never attribute something to one person. It's almost always a team. But maybe we disagree on that. But I can understand why if there is someone on your team who's constantly coming up with amazing tweaks or ideas, you want to reward that and celebrate that sort of that characteristic. So, I, you know, one of the things, um, and I, I forget who wrote this. I think it was Steve Blank wrote that how you celebrate like is who you are or something, something I'm paraphrasing. But I think it's more about what you said about celebrating. I think it is really important to track who comes up with what, because at the end of the day, marketing is about creating ideas. And then it's about actually implementing those ideas in a campaign or in some sort of um, vehicle that can, that can drive results. And I think that, you know, it's not about, you know, measuring who can do better or who, who can do what, but there are times where you're coming up with things that um, that you want some sort of recognition for. We talked about awards, right? About winning awards at the b- very beginning of this. And I think we all know awards actually mean nothing, right? Like they're a trailing metric of something that does not have any indication of whether or not your buyer does not give you awards. They give you your award is buying your business or, you know, spending their money. Right. So there has, and and for a lot of marketing teams, like the person at the end of that transaction is the salesperson getting them to sign the dotted line, which is an extremely hard job in and of itself. So there has to be some level of, I think, ownership for those things. And when you're divorced from that, that's where some of that, you know, kind of creep can come in of, you know, hey, maybe, oh, maybe we're either better than we are or not as good as we are or things like that. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But, you know, someone who comes up with a great line or a great idea, you still need someone to, let's say it's a line, you still need someone to put on a landing page and someone to put the graphics behind it and someone to make it sing and animate it and someone to build the uh, the form that goes with it and someone to, it's it's like, you know, marketing has really changed. Um it's definitely a super team sport and become super specialized now. And I think it's a challenge for people to become CMO. A lot of people on my team want to be CMO eventually, and you've got to rotate them in different departments and different teams within marketing. And that can be a career challenge. You know, how do you do that effectively? But it's uh, yes, super specialization now. So I'll give you an example. So I think the the line thing is totally true. I mean, if there's not a, a Google Doc somewhere at your company that has the exact copy that somebody already came up with 55 times. But so I'll give an example. Let's say you have a marketer on your team who's like, I listened to this great podcast, Demand Gen Visionaries, and one of the guests came on there and she said, one of my most successful campaigns from the Uncuttable Budget Items segment was that we send food trucks to our customers. Great idea. Yeah, right? Like that's the sort of thing that, if somebody brings that to you as an idea, hey, this is an idea I think we should do. I, you know, did some research. You know, I, I, I found this from somewhere else. I think we should repurpose it. Like those are the type of things. And like, by the way, I'll run the campaign, uh, and this is what I think we should do. And then it brings it to the rest of the team to. Yeah, very clear attribution. They brought the idea to the team. They discovered it. No question. That idea wouldn't have existed that company without that person discovering it on your podcast and bringing it in. Yeah. And that's, that stuff is just, I think it's what makes marketing so fun is like figuring out those little secrets and those, those little things. So where, where do you spend your money? A few places. Uh, yeah. A few places that I kind of find it kind of interesting. Um, you know, no one's 
response rates from all emails are down dramatically and people aren't picking up their phone anymore. So how do you reach people? And we found direct mail to be reasonably effective. And so we're using some uh, personalized direct mail through Alice, A-L-Y-C-E, that's been pretty effective. So they crawl through and find a personalized gift at scale. I remember um, telling my marketing team years ago, like, if you can find a personalized gift, you may get a meeting with someone. They'll return the call and they'll be grateful. Like, you don't have to send them much, but it shows thoughtfulness. And then suddenly I found all the BDRs and salespeople on Facebook all day. It was driving me crazy. They were like, you know, oh, Ian, you went to the school. I'll get you a hat that has the school insignia on it, or I'll get you something for your dog. And so Alice does that at scale. You just give an email address and it crawls through your profiles and it recommends gifts. And then it, it sends people a, uh, a pearl and people can go to that landing page and it says, Ian has chosen a couple of gifts for you. If you wanted these, choose one. And if you don't, you can find something else that you really like, but Ian wants to have a meeting with you and he sent you a personalized gift. And I found that's really spot on. We have pretty high conversion rates from that. Let's remember, I'm willing to pay a lot of money for a meeting. Uh, if I can get a meeting, I think a lot of marketers are cheap out with a $25 or $50 card. Like it's insane. And that's why doing something significant. Uh, years ago, I was involved where the, um, the ASP was like a half a million dollars. So we were sending out pads, um, you know, Apple pads. And uh, it was pre-programmed with some messaging on there, a video they turn on. There's a message from the CEO. You can do that with iPhones as well. You send people an iPhone. And when you turn it on, there's a personalized message, assuming the phone is fully charged and everything's good, it works. Sort of a failure right there. But um, one thing I've seen work for a very high ASP is you send someone an iPhone, a brand new iPhone with a recording, and it's a CEO talking to you with his mobile phone number and says, listen, you're really important to us. I really care about you. And I want you to know, here's my personal mobile number. Anytime you want to talk to me, I'm CEO of this. At the time, it was a pretty big company. Uh, it was actually Demandware, uh, which was later bought by, let's say, Salesforce or something. But Tom Ebeling, the CEO, did this with his marketing team. And it was really amazing, uh, the response rate. First of all, you're watching a little video of a CEO of a well-known company, and he's looking right at you talking about your name. It's not some SDR a year out of college, like goofing around with you uh, with some video message. And he says, here's my mobile number. Just call me anytime. I'll talk to you about the product. And uh, we had a pretty good conversion rate on that. So it was a lot of interesting things that work and don't work. I love that. Yeah. But I think you're totally right that, um, you know, the idea of uh, I'll spend a lot of money to get a meeting um, because I think you're right that people do end up cheaping out on those sort of things that, you could just spend a little bit more time and thought on, um, you know, we, yeah, we hear a lot of people and maybe this is just marketing specific. I don't know. You tell me, I mean, I think we get targeted with here's the sweatshirt from your alma mater sort of a thing (laughs) more than other people, because I think it's harder to reach marketers, but I would, I really wonder what like the market saturation for use. I mean, I'm sure Alice actually has a lot of this information. We should ask them. I have them on the pod. Um, but I wonder how much that's in use for a lot of other positions. Clearly, CIOs, you know, are targeted like right, left, and and in the middle. So I'm sure they are. But yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I think there's a lot of room here. I, I think you know, Alice is still a very small company, and people are getting a lot of junk. You know, one of the issues now, people working from home, who's ever going to give you their home address? And so, in the case of Alice's model, it says if you want to get this gift, we're happy to mail it to you. Just Give us your address. And people do that, but it's almost impossible to get a home address. So there's sort of little tricks to this. I think we were talking earlier 
about these little things that people can add that they ought to get credit for. What we found is that very small changes to landing pages or phrases or buttons can have a huge effect. And I'm always surprised by the kind of effect it is. Just changing one or two words, you know, the classic envelope that says $25 off or 25% off. Like you think they're going to be about the same and they have dramatically different or the blue envelope versus the white envelope, just very different open rates. And so uh, we're all about testing and making sure that's sort of baked in. The wonderful thing now is when I started my career in direct mail, it would take months to figure out, you know, you'd have to design this elaborate test. We'll send 10,000 white envelopes and 10,000 blue envelopes. And and then in six months, we might have a clue which performed best. Now, of course, uh, based on how much traffic you have, you may be able to do that in, you know, in a day and have a really good read and always iterate. So I love that science part of it. Any other uh, cool things that you've uh, you've spent your money on? I do like uh, review sites. So I do like, as I mentioned, G2, Trustradius, Trustpilot, Captera. I think people who are looking at your competitors' reviews are probably doing some early stage, and you can get them a little bit early, uh, which is really nice. Um, something that people don't think about is the real estate of email signatures. So most people just have salespeople do static email signatures, but if the marketing team can control, you know, we have hundreds of people on our sales team and that's precious real estate. And so we dynamically change that with videos and product pushes we're doing. And so we have control of all that real estate and we have a surprising amount of traffic of people clicking on different things that are promoted in email through email signatures of our sales team. It's something that is like untapped and you can really take advantage of it in sort of a fundamental way. I'm also about very few fields on forms. If you can get away with one field, maybe two. You know, the trade-off, as everyone knows, is the more you ask for, the lower response rate, but you get a lot of information. And there's so many back-end ways to fill it in, progressive profiling, clear bit. There are any number of solutions that can get you more information. So as you were saying earlier, no friction, get them into the product right away, as few forms as possible, just let them write in. So that's what we try to do, uh, ask as few questions as possible let people have a great product experience. And then you have all, all, all sense of things you can do. It's a whole range of things you can do with happy customers. Yeah. We had a Latney. Um, oh yeah. Conan. Yeah. From six cents on, um, 20 something episodes ago. And she has the, you know, no spam, no, no forms, no cold calls thing. And I, you know, I'm, when I get to a site that has like that, you know, that 10 form, um, you're like, Oh my gosh, I don't, we do. I mean, for our, for all of our podcasts, I mean, we manage over 20 podcasts. We, um, we just, it's email address and that's it. Just like, I don't, I don't care about any of that stuff. Like, and you know, it's funny. I know that there's, I know that there's data that supports putting someone's name versus not name versus all that sort of stuff. And it totally depends on what you're doing. But like you said, you just go to Clearbit, go to whatever, you know, like there, there's... Yeah, you can get it later through other means. Uh, you know, part of this has to do with the sophistication of the marketing team. I think a lot of people who are early in their career, yeah, uh, the sales team says, I need more information in Salesforce. So they say, okay, we'll put more fields. We'll get all that. What industry are you in? Where are you located? What's your name? What? It's like, whoa, you know, and they don't realize that they're suppressing the response from all of that. But yeah, a lot of, lot of tricks here, a lot of tricks to get more information. That's a great point. It's like, you know, I think it takes the the savvy marketer to go back to the to the VP of sales and go, why? Why do you need that? It's like, well, so we can do more research on who the person is. Why? It's like they're gonna volunteer that information to you in some way at some point. And at the end of the day, like 
you know, once you get to the phone call or once you get to whatever, like, do you really need any of that stuff for them to actually swipe their credit card? Like, that's the other thing. Like the classic question is always, how do I route the lead? Which rep, if I don't know where the lead is coming from, which geography, and it's just not a really sophisticated answer. You know, you got, what a funny point. Yeah. You're totally right. That it's like, it, this is, it, it is more about how your company behaves than it is about the customer yes. at that point. You're like, but this is how we do things. Well, it's like the customer doesn't care. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. Most companies are not thinking about the customer journey, what their experience is like. They're thinking about internally. How do we get more information? How do we route the lead? How do we do this? And it's like, put yourselves in the customer's shoes. Like, uh, how do you get them to download the product or read the, watch the video or something like just the email. That's all you need. Do you have any favorite campaigns that, that you've run over the years? I do. Um, when I was at Lattice Engines, that competed with Sixth Sense, and uh, we did a marketing nerd campaign. So a lot of marketers were sort of into this uh, numbers and sort of uh, nerdy thing, and we had a really high response rate uh, from that, and um, that was super, super valuable for us. Uh, I'm running a campaign right now that I'm really happy about. We have a, uh, a virtual whiteboard product called Freehand. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, you saw that. And, uh, you know, it competes with uh, well-established companies like Mural and Miro. Uh, but we want to have sort of a different point of view. And so very happy with our video. The product video is not a standard product video. It's uh, We use uh, 3D rendering, uh, very interesting music. I have a, a two-person video crew that is always taking classes in video production. And so very happy with that. So the whole uh, freehand campaign, very, very uh, happy with how that's working out. You know, we've had several hundred thousand people sign up less than a week for the product. And we're just starting to roll things out uh, pretty effectively. So very happy with uh, how the freehand campaign is going. It's so hard to stand out these days. You know, we're all inundated with messages and uh, you've got to do a lot of testing. So we do a lot of copy testing about what's working, what isn't. And uh, we had several campaigns that we tested both using, um, you know, just one-on-one -on -one interviews, you know, behind the shoulder, seeing where people are. Sometimes we use message boards and ask people about different phrases, words. So it's not just about what we like. It's about what is most effective of engaging people, what, what really tickles them. So I think it's important that people do that more often. You know, we see these Apple campaigns and these amazing campaigns from Google and I know some of the senior people on the marketing teams there, they do a ton of testing. It's not like some madman comes up with a line and then that's what runs. Like billions of dollars are riding on the effectiveness of these campaigns and they really think it through. I was so curious about the product launch for, for that product because you have this list of 10 million people. You have ton, you know, 7 million people using the app. Um, you have all of your customer, you know, uh, your, your segment there. So you have a pretty good spot. And I know not probably many marketers are very jealous of that. I know there's also, you know, downsides to having that much information, especially over time. Um, but I'm curious, like, how do you think about marketing a new product release when you have so much, so many own channels uh, or so much depth in your own channel? Well, you got to think about brand permission. Like how close is it in? Um, I think the expectation is that their existing customer, you should know me really well. So don't, spam me with a, a generic message. So the bar is a lot higher for marketing to an installed base who is like, we have a podcast, you know, we were talking about earlier and last season we had uh, John Cleese talking about creativity. We had Seth Godin, the marketing genius 
Uh, we just have a, a Brian Chesky, who's the founder of Airbnb. So we have amazing people on there. So when we market to the audience for that, they have very high expectations. Like we know what they're watching, who they are. So you can't hit with generic message. So your install base, your current customers, you've really got to nail it. So we do a ton of testing to the install base. The big challenge for Freehand is we're going outside that audience. So we've been very strong with people developing design products. But with this virtual whiteboard, we're finding very interesting use cases. For example, Amazon, who's one of our customers for this product, they're hiring thousands and thousands of engineers. But because of COVID, they have to do uh, interviewing remotely. And so they give engineers a problem, like two trains leave the station at the same time, or there's a rope over a river, like how long is the rope? You know, and you have to figure out between calculus and cosine and trigonometry and math, you got to be a problem solver. And so they were having a hard time getting people to solve problems virtually in Zoom. So uh, Amazon bought a lot of seats from us for this virtual whiteboard, and they're using it for interviewing, job interviews, because uh, they want to see the work. So suddenly, a engineer picks up a virtual pen and starts writing on a virtual whiteboard, and the people doing the interview can see how they're thinking about solving a problem. And so uh, we had never seen that use case before for whiteboarding, for interviewing. And so now we're targeting companies that are doing a lot of hiring to the HR department. So we have no brand recognition. We have no brand permission to go in the door called HR recruiting. We have plenty of brand permission to go in through engineering or product or product design. And so that's where we go through typically. So this is new to us. So that's the biggest challenge of this, this campaign of going into new areas of companies for freehand. Any piece of advice there on if you're, if you're going into a, to a brand new place like that, uh, what, what you should think about? Yeah, what we've learned is that uh, you should go in through the door that's open to you already. So if you go to a door that isn't open, it takes forever to break open the door. But at Amazon, if we're known to the product design people, how do you get that product design leader to make an introduction to HR? What incentive, what reward? So I won't tell, I can't share right now, but we're testing four or five different things. It might be an iPad. It might be a set of earphones. You know, it might be any number of things that we're looking at, but what's something that doesn't appear to be a bribe because some companies, they can't actually accept a gift of more than $500, but what's it worth to us to have a, an introduction to the head of HR within that company? Uh, it's worth a lot to us. So we're trying to figure it out. What do you think, Ian? Do you have any ideas how you would make, because this is a very common issue where you want to cross sell, like we're at Disney animation, but we haven't sold yet to Disney theme parks, for example. So how do you get an introduction to other functional leaders or other divisions or business units within a company? How do you get that introduction? Yeah, I, no, I, I, th I think that, that that's the route I would go. I mean, I think, um, you know, you always risk the, you know, burning a bridge when you're asking your customer to do lots of stuff. I know people always feel like, oh, we ask our customers to do so many things. We ask them to do our events and we ask them to do this stuff. And you're like, yeah, but they actually might like all that stuff. So you might not be, you know, um, you know, giving them some, that might not be homework to them. That might be fun. Giving them a keynote is not work for a lot of people. That's actually enjoyable. So I do think that you, if you have good relationships there, then go that well. I think because of where we were for the last year, I'm really interested in like doing something experiential, giving them something, giving them a, you know, whatever, coupon to Airbnb or something, letting them go on a vacation with their family, doing something or, or an activity. That's a great one. A virtual tasting, give them an experience. Don't yeah. give them a thing. And, and give yeah. it to something with their family or friends. Because like at the end of the day, like 
you know, there's a lot of work stuff that we do. And I just think whenever you can give people time back and enhance their, their lives, I think, and it's not a thing, it's something that they'll actually remember. I always think, you know, my, my thing is marketing is, is, uh, has to be remarkable, which means you actually, you have to talk to other people about it. It's supposed to spur a conversation. And I think that experiences, um, allow you to do that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Okay. Let's get to our, uh, last couple segments here. The dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's your board, your sales team, or competitor, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust up? Uh, Yeah. I've had some sales leaders who are really struggling. And of course, they say the obvious things. They'll throw everybody under the bus. And uh, what I always try to do to avoid the dust up is I partner up with the CFO to talk about marketing measurement and metrics. Like, I think a lot of marketers stay away from the CFO. They think they're going to cut the budget. But if you've worked well with the CFO and the FP&A team, they become your friend. They figure out your metrics. They know how you're performing. And when the head of sales is saying marketing is not delivering what I need, they'll say, oh, they are. Maybe you're not following up on that, or maybe you're not converting the pipeline at the rate you should be. So CFO can be your friend. But I I think it's important for marketers to walk in the shoes of a person who's got the number on their back every quarter and understand the pressure that they're under and how they can help. And so for me, helping with a dust-up is all about avoiding the dust-up by listening really well. And when a sales leader or salespeople make recommendations, you should try to follow up on those things and really listen well and not assume you have all the information. Uh, but I have had some dust-ups with, uh, with sales in particular. Let's get to our final segment, Quick Hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with Qualified. Go to qualified.com to learn more. We love Qualified. They've been with us since the very beginning of this show. And a friend of mine who's a CMO, she reached out to me. She's like, how's Qualified? I was like, they're awesome. You should demo it. She demoed it versus a competitor and they absolutely crushed them. Go check out qualified.com to learn more. Quick hits, Brian, are you ready? I am ready. (laughs) Number one, if you weren't in marketing, what would you be doing? I'd be a uh, musician, tenor saxophone. Book, podcast, show you're currently watching? Uh, I'm reading a book called The Qualified Sales Leader uh, by a great guy named John McMahon, who is on the board of Snowflake, MongoDB. This guy's crushing it. I work with him. He was on my board years ago, and it's an amazing book. So talk about walking in the shoes of a sales leader. You'll learn a ton here. I love that. I, I, uh, we'll, have, we'll drop that in the, uh, in the show notes here. Best advice for a first-time CMO trying to figure out demand? Talk to individual sales reps and listen in on sales calls. You know, you can do that really easily through Chorus or Gong. There are all sorts of tools. There's no substitute for actually hearing the words or the objections that a customer is using. You can't sort of isolate yourself. So just dig in and listen in on sales calls. You'll learn so much in just a few calls. Brian, that's it. That's all we got for today. Thanks so much uh, for joining. For our listeners, go check out uh, Envision. Uh, t- tell your design people, do uh, do them a favor. Go talk to your uh, design people about uh, Envision. You can go to envisionapp.com. Uh, anything else uh, to plug? Any final thoughts? Nope. That's awesome. Thanks, Ian. I really enjoyed this. Great conversation. Yeah, great having you. Manage Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way b2b companies sell go to qualified.com to learn more